Those with a drive to go have an undeniable calling. They are not content to simply have a transformative idea. They want to create and build. They want to wrestle challenges to the ground and bring solutions to scale. They are makers and doers. They are go-getters. Go-Getters features straight-up conversations with leaders on the forefront of change who are taking action to impact our world, just as Lehigh people have done for more than 150 years. Join us as we explore their challenges, their passions, and what makes them go. Hello from Lehigh University. This is Joe Buck, Vice President for Development and Alumni Relations, hosting another edition of our Go-Getters podcast. Today, I'm here with Rehan Alam. Ray's a junior from San Francisco, pursuing a dual major in psychology and political science with a minor in philosophy. He's also a first-generation college student. Welcome, Ray. Thanks for yeah, inviting me here. I'm excited. It's great to have you here. Uh, in, in addition to being a first-generation college student, I, I, I've learned that uh, your parents emigrated from Bangladesh to the United States. Right. Uh, have you been to Bangladesh? Do you have family there in Bangladesh? Yes, I've been there, it was like 2003, don't remember any of it, went back 2010 and saw a lot of my extended family. It was, it was really nice. Yeah. You, you are uh, a long way from San Francisco. Right. Uh, can you tell, uh, tell our audience a little bit about how you got to Lehigh? Yeah, absolutely. Um, my family is very close, very close collectivist family. And um, I just knew I'm going to be back in California somewhere or another you know, somehow being close to them is very important to me. So I thought this was kind of being, you know, going to be the only time that I could, you know, get out for a little bit, right, for college for four years. And also just I wanted a liberal arts college, something small, and something where I can, you know, develop really strong relationships with my professors. And on top of that, the program, the money, it all just kind of made sense. Yeah. You mentioned liberal arts. Lehigh is not a traditional liberal arts college, right? It's grounded in a, in a strong foundation in engineering, um, longstanding business college. How have you found being in this environment? And yet you have some pretty serious liberal arts majors here and a liberal arts minor. So what, what has that been like for you? I think um, because people see it as, you know, a primarily engineering institution, people miss out on these like really wonderful faculty we have here in the College of Arts and Sciences that are really doing some really interesting research. And that's why I think sort of why I kind of developed a niche here, doing a lot of research and, you know, psychology and kind of because no one else is doing it. Ray, you mentioned financial aid, and I, I uh, in doing a little bit of digging, I know that last year you received the, the, the Donald and Dorothy L. Stabler Scholarship. And this year you've been the recipient of the Jacob B. Krauss Scholarship. What impact has financial aid made on on your ability to attend Lehigh. Yeah, so a lot of students, I think, in my situation, often take a part-time job, right, as they're in college. And, you know, I think having those scholarships really made it possible for me to have the career I've had here, doing all the research I do and, and you know, having a club that I started. This wouldn't be possible if I was doing a job on top of that. So I think, you know, just being able to have that security, not have to think about student loans and not feel bad about, Hey, you want to? You guys want to have dinner or something? Like you know, like I always feel kind of hesitant to do you know engage in those because I feel bad about spending money. Those scholarships kind of reduce all those like little things that kind of tick behind your mind. Really can allow me just do what I want to do. Is it fair to say that it's allowed you to 
take full advantage of the Lehigh experience? 100%. 100%. That's, that's what it's designed to do, and that's really great to hear. Um, what, what's your thoughts um, or, or your, your reflections on the Lehigh community? What, how, how would you describe the Lehigh community if you had to describe it to uh, an incoming freshman or if you met an alum who hadn't been back for several years? What, 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 how would you describe the community? I think just lively. I think everyone's doing something. Something's going on. Someone's part of some organization. Like, we, you know, you had Laura before, right? She's doing sickle cell anemia research. And every time I'm like, you know, everyone's busy and everyone's doing something. And that's what I think is really cool about it. Like, no one's just on their ass. Yeah. There's something going on. Something's doing, someone's really into something. Yeah. Yeah. In my capacity at the university, I get on the road a lot with President Helbley. And one of the things that he speaks about from the podium every time is the idea of open discourse and open dialogue. This is on the national scene, and there is, um, I think, universities are fairly questioned about, about our ability to do this. And I've heard President Helbley, and I believe him, and I stand with him when he says that Lehigh is a place where open discourse and critical conversation should be be happening and and can happen and he is really insistent that this is a place where that can where it where it where it is part of the community that we mentioned a few moments ago you started a student group called the douglas dialogues would you share a little bit with the audience about what that is why you named it after frederick douglas and a little bit about your progress to date yeah so we named that frederick douglas because he was a you know great free speech you know, um, advocate. He even, you know, advocated for, for free speech for people who were, you know, for slavery, right? He, he really believed in the marketplace of ideas, being able to talk between each other and get to consensus, right? And I think that's the kind of, you know, discourse and space that is lacking in a lot of places. So when I came to Lehigh, I thought, you know, that's what all college was going to be about. I was going to be listening to lectures. I was going to have a lot of conversations. And I realized, like, these were ha- things that were happening very rarely. There was no culture of engagement, but, you know, a big, you know, lecture, like, once a semester. And, you know, if there were plenty of clubs for, um, you know, groups like College Democrats or College Republicans for places where you can talk about things you already believe in. You can come in with the same assumptions, right? But there's very few clubs that were like, let's hash it out between beliefs, between college majors. And that's kind of what inspired that. So, so you really grounded in a place where people can engage in something that they may know, may, they may not know a lot about, or they may have a different opinion about coming in, but you're trying to create an environment where people are comfortable, respectful, right. having these kinds of discussions. Clearly, you, th- you, you, you saw a need at Lehigh. How do you feel you're doing in filling that need? How's it going? Tell, tell us a little bit about the topics, a little bit about the discussions, what was something that you remember from, from one of these dialogues. Right. Uh, bring us inside, if you would. Yeah, so every time we have you know, speaker events, they're, they're huge. So um, I don't know if you remember the whole debacle of Professor Frank Gunter after his Three Minutes of Poverty video. So our club actually hosted a debate between him and Professor Pooley, and we had over 100 people join that over Zoom. It just kind of shows, like, people want to hear the in-depth debate. They want to hear both sides of this, and they really want to, like, have a space where, you know, those ideas can be discussed freely. So that, that was kind of a memorable, you know, place for me. And then, you know, every week we have our, every other week we have our, you know, discussions between members, and they range from all sorts of things, like, 
our first meeting was about, is there, you know, has science gone too far? Is there like a limit? We're talking about, you know, our nuclear capabilities. And then recently we talked about, you know, Russia, Ukraine. It really depends on what people are feeling. That's what I like about our club. It's all democratically decided, the topics we talk about every other week. That's about what, what people feel. And are you engaging with faculty each time? Are you not necessarily having faculty involvement? How does the, let, you know, let's assume you decide on a topic. What happens then? Yeah, so every um, start of the week before our meeting, we'll um, have a, a Google form where people post all the topics they want, they want to talk about. And then we vote on each of those topics. And then one of them is picked and someone becomes a moderator for that topic and they're responsible for you know, bringing up questions and in case there's a lull in the conversation to have points to bring up. And they also set up a reading list to help people who kind of know about what they're talking about or want to learn more be um, prepared for the discussion. And then um, we just kind of advertise that. We let people know that we're going to have a discussion about this thing and if you're interested, come on in. And then we also vary that. We'll have speaker events, right, depending on what's going on. What are the ground rules? How do you keep it respectful and civil? Yeah. And so, has it always been? It, yeah, I yeah, think it has good, been. Yeah. Good. And I think that's an important thing to bring up. How do you do that? People think that we're not able to do this, that young people can't talk about important issues. I don't think that's the case. I think there's not a space to do that, right? You can't say that that's not a thing if there's no spaces where that can constructively happen. Mm -hmm. So that's what I think a big part of Douglas Dialogues is. It's, it's providing that space. And one way we do that is um, at the start of every semester, uh, we have everyone submit uh, community guidelines. And these are all built by all the members, right? And then, and then we'll have a list of community guidelines for our discussions. And I think it's important to have everyone submit things because it kind of builds trust in the process. They felt part of it that, you know, my rules are like important and going to be considered. And for particularly contentious topics, like we talked about abortion last month, we re-raise it. We like, hey, before we you know get into discussion, let's take a look at those before. Those are rules we all came up with. That's that's great. Do you think that the Douglas Dialogues complement the classroom experience or are they antithetical to what's happening in, in the classroom for you? Or what would most students say? Do you like how how does how does that work out when you're you know, when you're a student in a classroom with other students? And a faculty member, right? That's not your forum. Right, right. Right? But it is, right? So, right. like, how do you – tell me, what's the connection here to the classroom experience? Yeah, I think, you know, when you're in class, you have your thoughts and feelings about whatever you read about. And you're able to kind of express some of that in the class, right? It's very structured by the professor. At our club, it's whatever you really feel, whatever you're confused about, just say it, you know? Say what you really mean. Mean what you say, right? And, and that's what we have – our discussions on. I think it's much more free. And I think it allows you to really delve into any thoughts or considerations or misgivings you had about what you learned in class and really be able to explore that, right? And really see what other people think about that. And so it's so it's not as much a matter of that you you can't do that in the classroom, like you're not allowed. It's, right. it's, I, I'm hearing you say, I don't want to project that, but I, I think you're saying that the, the structure of the classroom or the ability for you to you know, take over a classroom discussion for something that you are unsure about, have a different opinion right. about, just the, the structure may not be always right to do that. And so you're trying to provide that where there are no, uh, it's not being governed by a, a 
curriculum right. or by a faculty member, or by a syllabus or by a content area. It's about how you feel. Yeah. What do you really think about whatever you learned, yeah. right? And and see and explore that feeling and those that, you know, chain of thoughts with other people. Uh, have you learned anything? Have you had your perspective or your opinions changed through Doug's dialogues? If so, do you, can you recall any specific examples? Absolutely. So it's funny. A lot of people complain I don't talk enough at these. And I think it's true because it, to me, it's a learning experience. A lot of the topics people decide to, to talk about, I don't know much about. And I learn a lot from other people. Like, um, I just remember we were talking about um, Biden pulling out of Afghanistan. That was like our first meeting. And someone mentioned how, oh, this is actually, this might be an interesting thing because the Taliban hasn't governed Afghanistan a long time and their economy is run by, by drugs. So it might implode. And I've just never thought about that argument for allowing the Taliban to, you know, like control. You know, something. The government, yeah. Exactly. It's like, oh, I never thought about it like that. Interesting. Do you see the club lasting beyond your time at Lehigh? Do you, has it, does it have roots and is it part of your legacy at Lehigh? I think it's definitely part of my legacy. Um, it's probably the thing I'm most proud of, I think. Just, just no matter how many people show up to them, I think just, I'm, to me, it's, I allowed the space to exist. And if you didn't show up, that's on you. But you can't say we didn't have a place at Lehigh to have intense discussions about important current events. Well, That's I how hope, I see it. I hope it lives on. It should. And Lehigh should be a place where it, it can thrive. And, and that's that's definitely a consideration. And we have, you know, a junior, sorry, a sophomore right now kind of in the, you know, midst of, you know, taking it over afterwards. Well, thank you for starting it. Yeah. And and I hope that it lives a, a, lives long and prospers. Let me switch gears to your academic pursuits at Lehigh. Um, as I said, two serious majors and a non-trivial minor. You know, as a social scientist and and philosopher, what are your specific interests or your specific um, areas of study? Yeah, so I think it really goes along well with Douglas Dialogues. So me and my um, advisor, Professor Gill, we worked on an intervention to reduce how harsh partisan liberals and conservatives are to each other online. So um, in our experiment, we showed that if you describe how a liberal who's criticizing you developed their beliefs— so you learn how they grew up, um, their kind of social and historical um, influences, like their childhood, the news they kind of listen to, what their parents say. And then you get crit critiqued by that person. And then you're asked to write a response tweet to that person. You will send less harsh tweets in response just by understanding where the other person is coming from. And so, that's actually in publication now. Yeah. So, so empathy. Right does influence the way that you'll react to someone who is criticizing you? Sort of. So the uh, mechanism we talk about as control of self-formation. Okay. So it's the idea of how in control was that person in developing their political beliefs. Mm -hmm. So realizing that it's at the control and um, whimsy of, you know, their environment makes you a bit more kinder when they're, when they're being mean to you. Did you have this interest as a as a high schooler coming to Lehigh, or is this is this an area that you discovered here through working with uh, with Dr. Gill? I think it was a mix. Um, like I started Douglas Styles. I had a club at in high school. I started called a Philosophy Club, and it was kind of playing a similar role. And I also had a club called Lowell Union, where we hosted debates between um, faculties and students. And it was kind of my little way of dealing with the problem of political polarization. Or what you hear about, you know, people being extremely 
harsh and toxic to each other and to people of the other side. So that was kind of, you know, I see Douglas Dialogues as how I, in my daily life, help out. And then I see the experiment as what am I doing? What, how can we really understand this problem? And what are some theoretical advances we can make in making people a bit more kinder and less affectively polarized? Is the experiment all-consuming in your time outside the classroom? Have you been able to take advantage of any other uh, experiences that we have, whether they be study abroad or any kind of internships or any any other any other uh, experiences yeah. you've been a part of? Yeah, so I'm a Martindale. Um, I'm in the Martindale program, so we're going to go to Denmark in August. So um, that's been great too, being really able to drill into a problem in this country and being able to like do a bunch of research and meet with very fascinating and influential people in Denmark every other week to develop that has been a really great experience. And that's a, a smallish group of students. Is it like 12 to 15? 12. So that's a really neat opportunity to work intimately on a project with some classmates right, um, right. in a really concentrated uh, concentrated period of time. And that will be this summer. That's correct? Yep. That's wonderful. Uh, I did see on Twitter that you recently Zoomed with one of your intellectual heroes, uh, Noam Chomsky. Uh, how did you connect with him and what did you talk about? Yeah, so it was through uh, my class with Professor Anthony DiMaggio. So funny enough, he's buddies with that guy. And uh, apparently they edit each other's papers before they submit it. So I was just like mind blown. So I, I was very mind blown that he knew him. And then he said, yeah, I could probably get him to talk to our class. And he said he might even help me get him for Douglas Dialogue. Well, that, that's a different conversation. But that'd be great. That'd make my year. Um, so yeah, he, he set that up and we talked about post 9-11 politics um, he kind of just fielded the questions we had from our class and yeah, it was, it was just great seeing how sharp he was at 93, you know, it, it just shows the longer you use it, the more it stays. But, um, yeah, I really admire him cause, um, here's someone who combines their, their moral duty with their intellect, right? They're using their intellect for a reason, right? To, to stop atrocities across the world. And I think it, it's so interesting seeing that you know, in comparison to maybe academics, professors kind of in their ivory tower or talk about these issues abstractly and not realize like we're talking about human lives here, you know, that's that's why he's been a hero of mine. So as we're recording this, we're a few weeks away from the semester and you're about to finish your, your junior year. What, um, what does the last couple of weeks look like for you? Just a bunch of essays. <laughs> yeah, I've just been working on papers, bunch of papers. And how about for this summer? Summer, yeah, I'm doing a couple um, part-time research internships, and they kind of add up to like a full-time. So I got a Stroh grant um, from Lehigh, so I'll be working with Professor Gill virtually on um, another intervention. We're looking at how we can get conservatives and liberals to not collectively blame individuals. So, for example— Yeah, give me an example. Yeah. Tell me what you mean. So um, if you see a harsh tweet on Twitter that's, uh, that's from a conservative that's, that's like mean about liberals— we're trying to disrupt the process of you going, oh, I hate all conservatives, just because of that individual. And the interesting way we're trying to do this is by showing the other side examples of harsh tweets from their side and saying, how much do you blame liberals as a whole for this person's tweet? Probably not a lot. So we're kind of you know, showing them, then why are you doing that for this? So we're, we're applying collective blame hypocrisy intervention to reduce how much they collectively blame each other for um, harsh political communication online. 
Well, the world could use more of that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm interested in your perspective on the real, real world implications of this. Because yeah. one could argue that people go to social media because they don't want to, they actually don't want to do that, right? right they don't right. actually want to engage in like, who is this person? And, you know, they actually want to go there and project on a whole bunch of people. Right. So, so you know, you, you do this study and you make these you, you prove these assertions that if you we have. Do, yeah. If you do, assume, yeah, yeah. let's assume you do, that, that you approve these, or, or you test these hypotheses. What impact does it have on Twitter or on social media? What what do you do with it right. um, to actually advance and make, you know, make the world a better place? Yeah, to me, how I see it is that it can be a kind of mental habit you can make. So it's like, if you ever catch yourself, you know, blaming a group completely for an action of an individual, to me, I, I see it as like a sort of, hey, like, would I blame my whole group if someone, if one person from my group would do that? So to me, I see it as like an individual, individual habit, like an, a mental habit to engage in, where if you're on Twitter and you're, and you're seeing yourself doing this, here's an exercise that science has proven that can help you not project like that. So it may not change Twitter per se, but right. the research itself, educating the publicity, right. making people aware of this fact. Exactly, right. Could potentially change the way they engage when they, they are on Twitter because Twitter's not going to change. Yeah. And that's not your expectation. Right, right. Yeah. yeah, it's hard to go from research straight. But you know, that's ideal, right? Once once you ever, whenever you feel confident about something you found, and I think it's really important that that's why I'm interested in social psychology is that I want to eventually try to make change. I want to work with policy people and, and not be stuck in my, you know, ivory tower and I'm writing paper after paper, but what is it doing? How's it adding something to the bigger picture? But yeah, but that's, that's a slow process and you want to be really confident and you don't want to oversell what you're doing either. Right. Uh, I, I just, I'd like to circle back to something that you said when, when we first started around the size of Lehigh. I do talk to a fair number of students, and I'm always impressed and grateful when they talk about Lehigh is the right size for them. And one of the things they talk about is a faculty member who they've connected with. Right. It, it More often than not, because of Lehigh's size, you you can make that kind of connection. It sounds to me like you've done that with with Michael Gill. Could yeah. you talk a little bit about what he's meant to you and his and your relationship with him? A lot. So, oh uh, yeah, I remember. So I took a social psychology intro class and they found this really bizarre finding where if, a, if a, an experimenter instructs a participant to shock someone at uh, deadly voltages, they would do it. People are very conformist and obedient is basically a shot. And I was, I was just completely shocked about it. And the professor I had who was talking about it talked in very abstract ways. When to me, it was like, how could that happen? So he's I, asserting that people would, under, under, under the right conditions, under obedience, yeah. they would, they would listen, shock someone. They would shock someone to a deadly voltage. Yeah. And that that blew my mind. So what I did was I went to all a bunch of professors in the psychology department. I knocked on their doors and I asked them, how could this be possible? And we kind of talked about the factors. One of the people I did it was Professor Gill. And we just had a great conversation about situational influences and and individual responsibility and you know how that relates, you know, to history where people have done bad things under, you know, orders and things like that. And I remember he just treated me as an equal. And I try to, whenever I did, find him to have a conversation. And I didn't even have a class with him. He's just someone who had a really fun time talking to. And one day I was like, hey, I want to be a research assistant. And next semester I did that. I did a lot of 
you know, his work, I worked on his work for making it easier, you know, transcribing participant um, recordings and things like that. Busy work, right? And then through that, you know, I kind of proved myself as someone interested in this. And, and he took me on his wing as an independent, you know, researcher. And that's how I've been able to really get into these topics I've been able to talk about you because he trusts me and yeah. he, he gave me that ability. Have you had any of his classes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've had a psychology of evil class with him. Okay. I, I don't suspect that you have a lot of free time uh, based on the way that you described your your carryings on. But I, I am curious what, uh, you know, when you're not experimenting and you're not running Douglas Dialogues and you're not writing essays and doing your schoolwork, what, uh, what constitutes fun or relaxation for you? Yeah, uh, they're all very similar. I love talking to people. I just love picking their brain and, and getting into what, what really do you believe, right? Don't, you know, getting to what do you actually think about something is really, really satisfying. And I also, I like walking around. I like sightseeing a lot. I like listening to music, indie folk, Fleet Foxes, favorite band of mine. Um, that's, a, that's a nice way to unwind. And um, yeah, that's pretty much it. <laughs> Have you done much traveling on the East Coast since you've been here? Have you been able to get out of Bethlehem? Yeah, so at the before the semester started um, in August, I went on an East Coast trip. We went all the way up north, so we went to New Hampshire. I um, we hiked the um, the Green Mountains. Oh, I forgot what it's called. Some very famous mountain there. Yeah, in New Hampshire, and then we went to Boston, and yeah, just went all the way up there. And it was summertime. It was beautiful. Yeah, I loved it. So we, having grown up on the East, we do talk a lot about the risk-averse mindset of the West Coast, right? Mm. Th that, that there is a different framework in which people survive, thrive, manage, live on the West Coast. I'm wondering if you have found a different mindset here on the East Coast, uh, and you know, are those differences real? Are we right. telling ourselves a story here on the East Coast, right, or, right. or do you think we're different? Yeah, be careful what you tell yourself, because you'll see it everywhere. Um, I, you know, I think college students are really fundamentally very similar. You know, they just want to have fun and they want to kind of find themselves through college. I think the only difference I maybe might see is I think people are a little bit more uptight here. I think it's a little more free over there and relaxing. But here people can get very anxious about things, I think. That's, that's kind of maybe, yeah. I don't want to get uh, I don't want to get ahead of your academic pursuits, but we're all going to be rooting for you, you know. Uh, and I'm I'm wondering about after Lehigh, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, I'm thinking of pursuing a, a PhD in social psychology. Yeah, just I really want to work on what I think are real world problems, whether it's political polarization and how people are communicating and and reducing how much you know vitriol exists, or if it's um intergroup conflict in, in other countries, like in what's happening in India, right? It's very, very scary where there's, you know, rising levels of hate speech towards Muslims. But I really want to use social psychology research to try to make a difference and, and really research these conflicts because I think that's where researchers need the most. Is there a, if, if you had a, the proverbial magic wand and, and could wave it today, is there a program that is of most interest? Is there a place that does this particularly well? If you could yeah. be anywhere you wanted to be, you know, a, heading a year from now, where would it be? Yeah. And it's scary being that explicit because uh, grad school is really hard to get into. I understand, yeah. but let's, let's <laughs> but remove all barriers be. of entry. Just, just, I will be. So. Um, UC Irvine has a really cool political psychology, psychologist, and he does really cool 
he has a really cool program where um, he has a lot of research on liberals and conservatives, and he's also looking at interventions for getting people to care about climate change, which I think which is very important. So that's kind of one place I'm looking at. There's a place in San Diego that does work on violence, moral violence, and um, his whole hypothesis is that people don't kill people because of misunderstandings or they don't have the right facts, but that they fundamentally disagree with each other about actions. They they don't de- dehumanization isn't a way to make it easier for them to kill people, but for things that are really they're really set out, there's no motivation to do that because they want people to understand why they harmed them. It's very very intriguing things. Yeah. Well, it will be. You have good choices, <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah. And it will certainly be be interesting. As I said, we'll be watching and, and we'll be yeah, we'll be rooting that. for you. Ray, it's been a real pleasure to have you here today. Um, I, I do have one more question for you sure. that we ask all of our podcast uh, uh, guests. It's not an original question. It is, you know, existential in nature. And I, um, given what I've learned about you, I suspect you're going to be really interested in all of the other people's answers. Mm-hmm. But uh, Rehan Alam, is there anything you know for sure? Sheesh. I didn't know I signed up for philosophy class today. Um, anything I know for sure. It's cliche, but I uh, I think love always beats hate. Beautiful answer. Uh, Ray, thank you for being uh, with me today. I ask everyone to check out our Inside the Episode page where we'll be able to feature and, and put some links for some of the work that Ray's doing with, uh, with Dr. Gill. And uh, as I said, we'll be rooting for you. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. This has been Go-Getters, a podcast from Lehigh University hosted by Joe Buck. Vice President for Development and Alumni Relations. I'm Michael Gill, Professor and Chair of Lehigh's Department of Psychology. And I'm pleased and honored that I've been invited to say a little bit about Rehan, uh, who I've really had a great time working with over the past several years. I've known Rehan since before he arrived at Lehigh. Uh, He emailed me during the summer prior to his enrollment, uh, that was the first time we met, and told me he had visited my lab website and found the work that we were doing in my lab really interesting. Uh, He and I arranged to meet as soon as he arrived on campus, and we began research discussions that have been more or less continuous since then. Rehan and I do research on blame with a particular focus on intergroup and political contexts. In one recent paper that we published in a top scientific journal, Rehan and I showed that people communicate more civilly with ideological foes in a Twitter-like environment if they first take a moment to reflect upon how the other's beliefs have been shaped by her particular history of life experiences. Such reflection, which we call historicist thinking, encourages reduced blame of the person for beliefs that we find morally objectionable. We might continue to dislike the belief, but we understand that given the other person's life experiences, it makes little sense to blame her or treat her unkindly for holding the belief. After Lehigh, Rehan plans to earn a PhD in social psychology and to continue to do interesting research on how people can learn to treat each other with more respect and more compassion. I'm sure that Rehan will be successful, and I also know that he'll be doing what he loves as he continues this kind of research. Special thanks to producer Janet Norwood, media production specialist Jared Brown, and the Lehigh University Office of Development and Alumni Relations. 
please go inside the episode at lehigh.edu backslash go-getters to learn more about Rayhan. And don't forget to subscribe to Go-Getters on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or your podcast app of choice. And take a moment to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so that other listeners can find us. Thank you.